and I am an anthropologist, a professor, and a chef. And this is Toasted Sister. for joining me today. So, uh, Claudia, um, you are Purapicha. Am I pronouncing that right? It's Purapecha. Purapecha. Can you tell me about uh, that group of people there? Uh, yeah, so uh, the Purapechas um, are original peoples from Mexico, um, specifically in the geographic location of Michoacan. Cool. So can you just tell me a little bit about yourself, like where you're coming from and um, maybe what kinds of foods you cook as a chef? Sure. Regionally, uh, I am located in Iseli. So I was born and raised here, you know, as a young chef, I should say, um, you know, in, in redefining that even right in that, that term as a five-year-old, I began cooking plant-based foods alongside uh, my grandmothers and my aunties and my mother, you know, specifically using three sister ingredients like corn beans and squash. As I have grown older and have entered my womanhood, I have not only embraced my food and my culture as, as a food culture, but have, have taken it on as, I want to say, a life journey, um, a life passion, and have embraced my gift in preparing food. As a, as a woman chef, as a native chef, um, I began cooking mostly plant-based foods, and I explored uh, raw foods for a majority of my time, you know, in working in the city of L.A. since about, I want to say approximately like 2007, 2008 is when I finally went public with the food project that I had at the time, which was a co-project of Decolonial Food for Thought and Cocina Popular de Aslan. You know, it was it was really reclaiming food, um, reclaim, reclaiming our ancestors' gardens. And in the process, uh, be, I began to eliminate heavy, heavy meats because that's really dominant in Mexican indigenous cuisine as a form of decolonizing the diet. And so um, I started cooking with basic foods like tamales, tostadas, tacos, and began to create um, alternative um, meat substitutes that were not uh, chicken, beef, and pork, because um, those, those you know, came with colonization. As I began to cook, um, I began to also integrate um, a lot more chia seeds and amaranth, and in that began to explore making puddings and desserts. And, you know, now um, as a co-founder of Cocina Manacorini, which is Kitchen and Food and Movement, uh, with my co-partner, uh, Chef Marlene Aguilar, we do prepare a lot of um, plant-based foods that are regional to Michoacan, because we're both Purepecha, also to East LA, so it's an eclectic of, of flavors. And then also to new native foods that have been introduced to us through uh, the present-day trade routes with a twist of indigenous uh, desserts. So uh, that's something that I, I, I do have a, a passion for is, is really exploring sweet flavors. Okay. 
Uh, when you're talking about new native foods, can you uh, give me an example of some of these? Yeah, sure. Um, so some of these foods, uh, well, for one, we, we were plant-based eaters. And so um, some of the foods that were introduced to us that are not part of the Southwest uh, was, was like bison, for example. Also to like crab apples, pine, using pine and cedar as um, what we call sazon and how to sazonar our food, like how to flavor our food. Yeah, so I mean, those are just some that just quickly come to mind. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I heard, I think it was uh, Dan Cornelius a while ago talking about um, how you used wild rice to make, um, was that a pudding? Was he talking about a pudding you and wild rice? (laughs) Can you explain that a little bit? Oh my God, that's one of my favorite dishes. (laughs) So... (laughs) So again, like I really do my best to not use um, dairy products. Well, I don't use any dairy products in the foods that I prepare for community and um, also too in in our pop-ups that we do. And so um, I didn't want to use almond milk and I didn't want to use corn. I thought, well, if I'm going to be out in Minnesota, then I should use rice. And I know that if I soak rice, um, it can pop itself. So, you know, you could have raw rice. And I thought, well, if I cook the rice, you know, I know I can make a milk out of this. And so I began to play around with cooked wild rice and began to blend it. And it, it just had a really nice thick consistency. And I thought, hmm, well, this can get a little thicker if I add some chia seed to it. <laughs> and I did. And uh, it just, be, it just the texture was just solid. And, um, and I flavored it up with um, some maple syrup. And of course, I, I I wanted to top it uh, with with a cream, and I thought, oh, I can make I can make you know I, again. I tapped into my my raw food background. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, if I soak walnuts, they'll get soft enough that I could blend and whip them. And so I did, and I was able to uh, create a walnut cream, uh, which is raw. You know, put it together and top it with some local forage wild berries. Wow! And uh, it became a hit at one of the uh, indigenous food uh, summits. Okay. And uh, people were asking for it, and uh, it was so it was so much fun. And I, you know, I, I publicly shared the recipe, and um, you know, people recreated it. And mm-hmm. this last time that I was there, um, everybody was asking for it, and it wasn't part of the menu <laughs> plan. It wasn't part of the planning, but the people asked for it. You know, so mm-hmm. so I recreated it, um, and uh, and now it's become I want to say maybe even a household favorite within nice. um, Native country, which is so, it's so, it's such an honor, you know, because um, it was just something that I came up with, um, again, because I really like to play with desserts. Yeah. Uh, do, do you think that's um, all part of, um, you know, the movement is to share all these different Native ingredients? I know there's also like a, like an emphasis on being and exploring your regional Native cuisine, but also, you know, also those trade routes that really, and, and our modern day trade routes, you know, going, coming from, you know, California, Mexico areas, all the way down to, um, up, up to the Midwest and learning about all those yeah. kinds of ingredients. I mean, um, w- w- what do you have to say about, you know, s- mixing it up? You know, I'm definitely, you know, I definitely promote and I do my best to stick with what is local. Mm-hmm. But like, for example, and even within that, there's still so much diversity because because of where I'm located in L.A. I mean, we ha- this is an indigenous hub. You know, it's not just one um, Native community. It's not just a Tongva or it's not just a Sapote community or Purepecha community like we have. You know, second and third generations that have taken on mixed identities 
as Indigenous peoples. And uh, and then the landscape also has become the landscape of the flavors that folks that come into L.A. Um, bring with them because the landscape begins to um, flourish, right? Mm-hmm. So we have a lot of cactus. We have a lot of wild galitas, which are wild greens. And with that alone, I mean, it, it's it's just like this indigenous fusion. Uh, what I have found is, is, you know, and I think it speaks to the trade routes as well, is that you can find wild amaranth up like by Minnesota. And, you know, it's it's like, well, how did that get there? You know, like it just didn't just pop up out of nowhere like this happened. This is something that's generational, right? So I feel that as much as it is important to stick with our locality, you know, for ecological reasons, I still feel that it's it's part of our, our history of, of continuing to share and engage um, just like corn, right? Like, you know, if it wasn't for the corn that, that came up north, like it wouldn't be all over, you know, Turtle Island the way it is today. Mm-hmm. And so I feel what's fun is to, yes, respect and honor and speak to where this food comes from because that's really important too. But what I find majestic is is how it all comes together and creates this just amazing palette where that, you know, just, just really speaks to, you know, something that we use that we were referring to at this last Indigenous Summit, Indigenous Love, mm-hmm. uh, because you could taste love, you could taste the ancestors, you could taste the memories that we all share. And I feel that by being able to integrate and bring these flavors and foods together, that we create a new story. Um, it, it it alone becomes an oral tradition. It alone becomes, you know, something that we will carry with us, um, you know, like Rowan White shares, uh, we have metabolized it. Um, it becomes part of us and we become carriers of that mm. through taste. So I feel that it, it's just such a beautiful experience um, to see, to, to witness, and more so to participate in the preparation of these foods because you're you're touching, you're you're smelling, and you're listening because the food, you know, communicates and has something different to say. It's it's pretty powerful, I want to say, um, and I I definitely hope that um, you know we can see more of this, but mo- most of all that uh, we have more, I want to say, indigenous run. Um, um, businesses, because it is kind of hard, even in LA, for us to find, you know, wild rice producers, because we could only get it from like the Minnesota region, you know, or just other grains that were, perhaps could be more accessible to us. Uh, but again, you know, that is why it is important to contribute to an indigenous economies and, and tribal, tribally owned businesses that are providing these ancestral memories through food. So definitely agree that this fusion is 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 something but um but magic. Uh, I want to take it back a little bit. You were um, uh, just talking a little bit about um, maybe your relationship with food has changed. And you mentioned, um, uh, you know, being a female. Well, can you talk a little bit more about um, the, the indigenous female connection, that, that unique connection with food and learning about food? Mm. You know, that's a really heavy question. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, so, um, you know, being a, a woman, being a mujer, uh, being a mother, the first thought that came to mind is is being a life giver. And I feel that, you know, just, just in speaking of myself, that it, it allows that. It allows that opportunity to to give and create. But I think what's really, really nice um, and something that we don't even hear too much about is how... Food uh, begins to, you know, d- dismantle even these 
this idea of gender because other other people it doesn't matter what whether you know what their gender or sex is that they are also get to produce and become life givers so i just want to acknowledge that you know with with the preparation of food but for me i want to say um I've learned, you know, in the past, I used to, I used to, I understood food as aside from growing up with it and being close to it, I began to become socialized and, and began to see power dynamics happening, like even in my own home space in the kitchen. And I almost internalized the belief that, that food was oppressive, that being in the kitchen was an oppressive experience and that I needed to liberate myself from that. And when I began to cook a lot more plant-based foods and raw foods, I, I realized, no, that that wasn't the case, that, that the kitchen, in fact, was um, a space of healing. It was, it was where I was able to become what we call a curandera. I was able to uh, become a medicine woman, you know, because food is medicine. And at that moment, um, it became like a responsibility it was like, you know, like my my motherly self kicked in and I thought, oh, I need, to, I need to be, you know, I have a responsibility and I need to fulfill this. So coming to food um, for me was, was yes, to, to give life, but, but more so to, um, to continue life and to be able to provide and show different ways to prepare food that weren't so heavily processed, that weren't filled with. Um, colonized product, you know, as a form of decolonizing, as a form, as a, as a form of liberating our bodies, and as a form of indigenizing our spirits or re-indigenizing ourselves. And so, being with food now is it's also it's also intimate. I feel that um, I, I participate in a form of intimacy. There's there's native um, indigenous feminists that that talk about this as as a form of decolonial love, even. You know, you smell food, you taste it. Like there's a lot of the senses. You're you're really utilizing that, right? So it becomes a an intimate an intimate moment, and and for me that's really important. I I feel that, you know, it it really speaks and it broadens my my lived experience, and and also to again, you know, it just brings me back to like I can continue to give life. I don't have to continue to have babies. You know, I can continue to prepare food, and that's that's okay, and that feels great because you know you see the happiness in others. You hear you hear what they have to do, and you create also intimate moments for other people. You know, when folks taste my food and, and other foods that are prepared within this indigenous food movement that I have witnessed, you hear the sounds, you hear the moans, you hear the yums, you hear like all these, you know, these these, these intimate sounds. Yeah. It's it's just so amazing to, to hear and participate in that. And I think, wow, you know, the ancestors are happy because mm-hmm. we're happy and, you know, everybody is satisfied and, and that's great. Yeah, so what, what a way to that, explain it. <laughs> it's the sounds of intimacy. I know you hear lots of like, oh, God, that's my yeah, word I it, use uh, when, when something's exactly. really tasty. It's like, oh, my God. <laughs> it's so good. It's I mean, I've also heard intimacy. some of the chefs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some of the chefs I've heard, I've, you know, even in the kitchen, because we chase each other's food. And, yeah. you know, in this last food summit, um, one of the chefs took a bite of um, one of the meals that Chef Marlene Aguilar and I prepared. And he said, oh, this is orgasmic. And I thought, wow, (laughs) that's great. (laughs) That's what it should do for you. That's what it should do. (laughs) You know, so I I feel that it's it's just so powerful in that way. You know, it's Mm -hmm. just so powerful in that way. And 
and you know, I feel like there isn't a lot of discussion about this because you know it, it's it's something people shy away from. But you know, I'm not a very shy person, so <laughs> I like to talk about it. <laughs> Uh, you um, mentioned, or at least it's it's uh, written on the um, sort of the about page for uh, decolonial food for thought. But it mentioned uh, baby food politics. What what is what is that about? Yes. Okay. So that's my baby. <laughs> that's my baby project. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so um, so in learning about food, I had uh, I want to say about seven years ago now. I, you know, I had found that I was going to be a mother again. I, I wanted to understand prenatal nutrition. I wanted to learn about baby food and, and why it is that certain people in power were saying that this is what, what you have to eat. Like, I wanted to understand, well, what determines what is prenatal food and not? And in the process, I learned a lot about, you know, the depolitical processes that occurred, um, you know, during the Industrial Revolution and how negotiations were made with the Medical um, Association. In that, I, I kind of just kind of followed the rabbit hole and eventually found myself coming, coming out of it full circle and understanding um, how taste, again, uh, creates craving. In this baby food politics, I learned and discovered that, uh, you know, the, the market marketing companies, they have learned that the best way to market food and to get people craving food is through their taste palate. And so they discovered that this is something you do at a very young age um, because research that has come out of the area of womb ecology determines that what a what a baby um, is exposed to from from as early as a time of conception up to the age of two, even five, will determine their health outcome as an adult because that is what your body is going to crave. That is what your body is going to return to. So I decided that this was not going to happen to me, that colonialism was no longer going to infiltrate my body. I took it upon myself to indigenize my entire prenatal nutrition you know, I got my calcium from seashells. I got uh, also from chia seed water. Um, I, I brought in, you know, spirulina and other other algaes. Like, I was really, um, really determined mm-hmm. to birth a baby with um, decolonized taste buds because I wanted to assure that my child will, would always eat and crave, you know, her ancestral foods. Um, so in Decolonial Food for Thought, I began to um, articulate that, you know, now I, I've, I've kind of just, it's just been sitting there just waiting for me to pick it up again, because mm-hmm. I feel it's something really important to address in our communities, because a lot of children and a lot of people during their pregnancies, you know, are eating foods that will seep through the, at least the flavor into the amniotic fluid. And this amniotic fluid is what the babies begin to taste um, as early as a few weeks um, into their life where, where they already have developed their, their tongue and taste buds. Um, that is why, you know, for me, it was, it was just super important to flavor up my amniotic fluid yeah. with, um, with chilies and beans and, you know, just those, those, those flavors that, yeah. that speak to me as a woman and, and to my identity. Nice, nice. How do you think that's um, worked out so far with your, with your kid? Are they, uh, you know, craving, craving the Fruit Loops and stuff like that? Oh no, no, not at not at all. Mm. And that, you know, and it's I, you know, I know this is this is a really hard term to say, but it blows my mind. Yeah. I 
I am like, oh my goodness, this is a miracle. I, I see the things that my daughter eats, um, what she craves, and other people say, wow, like I've never met a little girl like that before, um, because she prefers the plant-based foods. So these are these is what she goes for first. You know, she was never, she never, she didn't grow up eating cereal, no processed food. I prepared all her food when she was a baby. I made her all her baby food, um, you know, by introducing avocado and squash and yams and kale even. And this is what she craves. And my daughter just turned six. Um, And so it's, it's a phenomenon. I'm just, I'm just wow, because I never in my life have I seen a child that, eats as much food as she does and, and eats as much greens as she does. Uh, I mean, one of her favorite foods right now is cactus. Mm. A lot of children her age won't even dare touch it. Um, <laughs> I have cousins that won't even eat avocado. Uh, and my daughter, she'll see me mash avocado and I'll add a cacao to it. And I'll add a little agave and I'll make a raw um, chocolate pudding for her. And she knows exactly what ingredients are in there. And she's mom can have some more. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's very experimental and she, you know, she eats the food of the ancestors, the, the food that, you know, our grandmothers, grandmothers ate. And it's, it's just gorgeous. It, I mean, it, it, you know, I, I try to hold back because she's my daughter, but I sometimes want to cry because I myself can't believe it. Mm-hmm. And, and it angers me that, you know, within present day politics and, and, you know, these, these health nutritionists and, all these that are pushing, pushing these particular foods on our children. I mean, it's killing them. Mm. And, you know, their life expectancy is going to go down because this is the foods that they're eating. They're growing up eating hot Cheetos. They're growing up drinking soda. They're growing up, you know, uh, drinking heavy dairy mm. um, in their diets, you know, which has other other issues that, that will occur when they hit puberty, right? And um, so, yeah, it's definitely... Um, something I celebrate and I give thanks to creator for because, um, I mean, I can, I can make, I could juice nopal even and give her a wild nopal juice. Um, she likes the one that my, you know, one of my, my girlfriends, uh, she has a business called OG juices and, you know, she uses a lot of, um, ancestral, um, ingredients in there. And mm-hmm. my daughter is constantly asking mom, when, when, where's my next juice at? Where's my next OG juice at? <laughs> and yes. Yeah. And it's, it's just amazing. Cause she, you know, she takes to the green very kindly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do, do you experience maybe any challenges? Um, uh, maybe your your daughter, your your kids are looking at you know the 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 restaurants on the street. They're looking at commercials. They're looking at magazines that show all these different um, uh, you know foods that they're really you know um, advertising to kids to you yeah. know the cereals, the the hamburgers, and the pizzas and stuff like that. Uh, do you get do you um, face any kind of challenges? challenges just trying to I mean it sounds like you're you're not yeah no I, I'm trying to rein I'm it in but I'm happy to say that yeah. you know it's it's at none at all I mean it also helps that we don't have a television and we don't oh. watch tv uh-huh. <laughs> you know we, I mean we'll uh, watch something online you know but mm-hmm. that's it so there's no you know she's not really exposed to to marketers um that's one thing I was really also, too, I really wanted to make sure that my daughter wasn't exposed to uh, to that because mm-hmm. then, you know, she, she, it might be something she'll, she'll ask about. Um, I mean, she is very curious about certain foods now that she's um, been exposed to other children. Mm-hmm. Um, and she'll ask, you know, Mom, what is that? And, and But she will say, oh, well, I don't eat that because that's going to cause, um, that might constipate me. That mm-hmm. doesn't have fiber. She's only six and she knows about <laughs> fiber. Like, I'm like. Wow. 
Um, so, you know, it, it is not a challenge at all. And I, I'm so grateful. I think it would be more challenging if my daughter only wanted um, these, you know, high fat, high processed foods, because mm-hmm. then how would I integrate beans and kale and, and spinach and tomatoes? I mean, she eats tomatoes like fruit. Mm-hmm. I don't even do that. Because that, you know, that's just not how I grew up eating tomatoes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What, what, what kind of foods did you uh, grow up eating? So um, I did grow up eating a lot of beans, a lot of rice, a lot of calabaza, which is a squash. And when we did cook tomatoes, we cooked it in our, like in our stews. Mm. Um, it wasn't introduced to me like a fruit. My family, my dad also, because, uh, you know, he's Budapecha, and he actually would um, dry a lot of meat. So we call this machaca. And this is something uh, that was, um, you know, it was a seasonal experience. So it's only when there's a, um, you know, in the the rancho, right, that's what we call it, that he grew up eating, you know, when there was a slaughter and and this is what would occur and um, they would dry their meat. And so uh, we we grew up eating a lot of dried meat. And, you know, it was beef, it wasn't bison, or it wasn't deer. And that's traditionally what we would eat in, in our in our community um, in Mexico, which is venado and gordonis, which is quail. But um, I would eat a lot of that. And it wasn't until, I want to say, maybe about 10, 10, between 10 and 12, that we began to watch a lot of TV. And sure enough, um, my parents, they, you know, they believed that we had to acculturate and they wanted to, you know, they thought it was a good thing. Oh, we should give our daughter a soda or we should buy Twinkies because mm-hmm. this means, this is a good thing. This is a reward. Um, and lucky for us, you know, we, we still craved our everyday soups. We, I, you know, my sisters and I, we still craved, um, you know, corn. Mm-hmm. We still wanted our tortillas. You know, so we definitely grew up eating a lot of our grandmother's grandmother's food, um, which I feel speaks to why you know, I cook so much with this particular foods um, and why it's so important to me. Um, because now, like we say, you know, I'm in the knowing. I'm aware. And, you know, don't get me wrong, right? As a teen, you, you eat other foods because um, that, that's what everybody else is eating. But at home, that's not what we were eating. At home, we were eating, you know, the food that my mom prepared. And it was great. I, I did a, a little bit of uh, Googling around, and I found your website, uh, Decolonial Food for Thought. Can you kind of explain that a little bit? And is that the name that you use for your uh, catering gig, or how, how are those connected uh-huh. or not? Yeah, no, so um, so Decolonial Food for Thought started um, as, as just a platform to raise awareness as to what colonization means in regards to food and how... Um, indigenous foods from Mesoamerica um, became colonized and how that colonization has extended into the infiltration of our body by the consumption of these foods that have um, deep colonial products in it. It was something that was created by, again, uh, Chef Chris Rodriguez and myself uh, to just raise awareness and also um, just to speak on the women's experience, on the you know being in the kitchen, uh, you know it's all, it also became a, a platform to to be political and be angry, uh, and at the same time share recipes. Out of that experience, it opened up a catering project uh, at that time, which was called Cocina Popular de Aslan, and uh, that uh, was facilitated. I want to say for about a year um, until I, we had to leave the the area for um, 
for household reasons, and uh, we were no longer in our community. Um, and so when I returned into, to back to my community, I was able to, I, you know, I just kind of ho- would host my own events, and, and I would speak and prepare food as myself, you know, Claudia Zarrato. Um, and I was blessed to uh, come together with Marlene, um, and we decided that, you know, we're both Budepecha, and we both cook food you know, plant-based foods here in L.A., and uh, we both had a vision together. And so we decided to, you know, branch off and, and join forces. So Decolonial Food for Thought, I, I want to say it's it's what we call Palabra. It's a, it's a place and space to, to share work, to share knowledge. Uh, but now that knowledge has become something more in the flesh, where we do um, through our catering and our catering project, that which is Cocina Manacorini, uh, that does have its own um, social media platform and so forth. And we also uh, take some of that knowledge that has come out of Decolonial Food for Thought and use it uh, to share with communities um, in understanding how and why our our foods are so um, colonized uh, with, you know, colonial products because you know, not, not a lot of people understand that. That was Claudia Serrato, anthropologist, professor, and chef. Thank you for listening. I'm Andy Murphy, producer of the Toasted Sister podcast. Please subscribe to the Toasted Sister podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and Podcast Addict. And if you know a native chef that you think would be a good voice to hear on Toasted Sister, like Toasted Sister on Facebook and send me a message. I've got lots of names on my list, but I know there's more to add. Thank you.